Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's dive in now to the equity markets. Dan Ives will join us here on tech. We're going to try to have him give us a $200 top tick on Apple. We're not going to do that with Beata Kirsch's co-head of investment strategies, Bernstein Private Wealth. But she is in the heart of the earnings season, as are Gina Martin-Adams. What is the trajectory of earnings that you see, Ms. Kerr? Well, what we see is an earnings season that's likely to be more volatile than the last several. We're coming off of a substantial rebound in earnings, whereas in prior quarters, earnings are up 45% year over year. The consensus view for 22 has really moved to a 9% year over year view. Now, that's still positive, And that's one of the fundamental underpinnings that's really driving the equity market forward. But like you just said, this is going to be a story of figuring out supply and demand. The demand still appears to be there. Who's got pricing power is one of the fundamental differentiators in this earnings season. Beata, are you buying consumer staples considering how much they've sold off and the fact that we have seen them able to pass along that pricing? Well, what I would say, Lisa, is it's not about a sector. It's not about a style. It's about the stock picking. Stock picking is back. And even though 30% of managers only are beating the S&P year to date, at Bernstein, we've had great success this year with stock selection. So it's not as easy as saying buy this sector. It's about the company. Do they have the ability to pass on price increases? And some companies do. And some companies don't. So you really have to differentiate by the individual company. So talk to me about the pillars of support into next year for this equity market. If you're constructive next year, what are the things that you see right now that can persist into a new year? Well, what we see is still strong economic growth. Obviously, economic growth is fading from the incredible rate at which we were growing in this calendar year. But we're still looking for close to 4% GDP growth in the U.S. and over 4% GDP growth globally for 22. So you've got that as an economic backdrop. Mm. We don't think the Fed moves rates until 23 The taper argument is out there, kind of well understood by the market. And as you were just discussing, it looks like we're still going to get some stimulus, even though it is a measured pace. This is really important. You have 4% U.S. vision for how long, Beata? That's for 2022. Like you said earlier, the visibility is murkier, Tom. So there's a wider range around that. Yeah, fair. Okay. But how do you get to that optimism? We got got most people way under you on that. What's the Bernstein call that gives you that enthusiasm? I would say that the Bernstein uh, bottom-up view to get to that economic perspective is still that there is tremendous support in the overall output. What we're seeing is while you see manufacturing plateauing a bit, you still got services rebounding. Look at the supply and demand issue. The real issue has really been in goods. Services are coming back. You just said it earlier. Consumers are coming back. Families are traveling again. 
We do have to be careful on the lower end of the consumer, especially. But what we see broadly is still support for that strong economic growth. Beata, one uh, aspect of debate on this show repeatedly over the past few months has been what the investment thesis is around what's going on in Washington, D.C. We've seen mostly dysfunction, but they are working to get something done. How do you price in the idea of more fiscal stimulus, but also the idea of higher corporate taxes? Yeah, we think the market's really acknowledging that the corporate tax rate is going to move up a couple of percentage points. So you're looking at a mid-single digit hit to earnings growth. So there is some vulnerability in that current consensus number. The market's been in a wait-and-see mode to see what actually happens. But if you look over the last six months, nothing close to what was originally proposed is going to happen. So while there is some downside pressure from the corporate tax rate likely to come up, it's far less threatening than it was at the outset. And then, like you said, Lisa, there's the offset of more stimulus actually coming in to support uh, the consumer. So I think the market's you know, sanguine. Again, it comes back to companies, pricing power, that supply-demand picture is going to be much more important for earnings outcomes and ultimately market outcomes. Beata, we've been talking about some of the pessimism out there and that markets have rallied despite all of that gloomy talk. What is the biggest concern among clients who you speak to who have to figure out how to reposition? Well, it's not just the biggest concern amongst clients, but it's something that we're watching the most closely as a potential risk for the market. And it's what we've already brought up several times. Is inflation transitory? And our house view is that it is going to moderate from the extraordinary price increases that we've seen over the summer, but that the likelihood of it being higher than it was pre-pandemic is going up. So we're not talking about a 1970s type environment, but we are talking about an environment that's in the two to 3% range in all likelihood compared to the much lower numbers that we saw pre-pandemic. Beata, thank you. Beata Kerr there of Bernstein Private Wealth Management on the path forward. Russ Kostrick joining us now. He's not ugly. Portfolio manager for the BlackRock Global Allocation Fund. Just around the corner, Russ, from all-time highs. Walk me through why you're still constructive, sir. Well, good morning, John. You know, look, I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we have a market that is earnings-driven. You know, last year was all about the multiples. This year, multiples have been flat. They've actually been down a little bit in many sectors. But as Lisa pointed out a moment ago, earnings have been stellar. And yes, there are reasonable concerns about margins, but when you have an economy that is growing this fast, where nominal GDP is still growing at the best level in years, if not decades, you're seeing that manifest on the earnings side. And that's been powering the market higher really all year. You know, I, I look, Russ, where we are right now, and we're all trying to reset. I'm getting some optimism out there. Lisa, I think, nailed it in her opening comments. And the idea that even with some worry about rising rates, steeper curves and all that, we see corporations delivering within this environment. Is that what you expect? Yes. I think the short answer is yes. And, you know, just to be clear, I, I get the rate concern. We've had some volatility coming from the bond market that is likely to continue. But again, just to put things in perspective, we've got some deceleration in the economy, still very strong numbers. We've got the U.S. household arguably in the best shape in decades, whether you look at savings, household net worth, you look at the growth and in income. And against all of that, against all of that, we've got a 10 year at 163. That is not an existential threat to equity markets. When I look when I look, Russ. 
at the moment in the back and forth narratives we see, the gloom narrative has evaporated in the last 10 or 12 days. What's the caution you have in portfolio management? How do you take those narratives, take them in and stay optimistic? You know, I think one, look at what's driving markets. I go back to earnings, but there are some risks out there. Uh, the risk to me is not, again, whether the 10 years at 140, 150, 160, uh, it's around some of these supply issues. One, because obviously it feeds into inflation, and as we've seen, inflation has been stickier than forecast six months ago, but it also can affect growth. But the key here is that you know these supply issues are, while they're widespread, they're more heterogeneous than I think a lot of the narrative talks about. What do I mean about that? Just take one segment of the economy. People have spoken about commodities. Even there, you see all of this divergence. Copper, uh, iron ore, yeah. lumber, aluminum, they're all doing different things. And this is just, again, within industrial commodities. So this notion that we're going to be strangled by supply, I don't think is right. But at the same time, whether you're talking about inputs, semiconductors, or the most important one, labor, there are real supply constraints that we have to watch. Okay, Russ, so you talk about nuance. Let's talk about nuance. You like consumer discretionaries. You're not that fond of financials at this point, even as you do expect yields to rise. Can you square that for us? Absolutely. I think there are a couple of things behind that. The first of which is we don't expect yields to rise that much. There's still a wall of money looking to invest. You still have everyone from pensions to uh, endowments looking to take advantage of the backup in yields. You've got foreign investors looking to take advantage of the backup in yields. Second, if you actually look at what's been happening on the curve, as you know, it's been flattening. Again, not uh, not a huge headwind, but again, not a tailwind either for, for financials. And then finally, I think we consider where do we want to be right now? One of the key ingredients is pricing power. And this, the simple answer is we see better examples of pricing power in manufacturing, uh, in parts of materials, in the consumer space than we do in the financial space. It's not obvious how much pricing power banks and other financial companies have right now think there are better opportunities elsewhere in the economy. All right. And the other side that I thought was really interesting about how you are nuancing your portfolio is you don't like gold. You think it's kind of useless as a hedge. You think it's kind of useless as a potential for profit gain. Why? And when did you start to actually sour completely on gold as an allocation? So we were fairly long gold about 14 months ago. I think as we've discussed in other shows, we really brought it down starting late last year, early this year. And it's not that gold is always useless. There are periods such as last year when gold is an incredibly efficient hedge. The problem is gold is very responsive to real rates, and we have seen some normalization in real rates. The other issue is you've got to ask, what is gold hedging against? What is its efficacy as a hedge? And there are two areas that people normally quote. One is risk. Unfortunately, right now, if you look at how gold is trading, it's actually trading with a positive correlation with equities. So it's not really doing a great job hedging equity risk. The other argument is gold hedges inflation. I think that's partly right, but it's right on a time frame that most of us don't think about, whether you're talking about literally decades. If we're thinking about how do we want to hedge inflation in the near term, to my mind, the better hedge is focusing on equities with pricing power that are going to keep up with that sticky inflation. Hey, Russ, fantastic to catch up with you, sir, with record highs just around the corner. Russ Kostrick there of BlackRock. <laughs>
Widely anticipated by Global Wall Street, we bring in Daniel Ives, Senior Equity Research Analyst at Wedbush. We'll do Apple here. One question on Tesla this morning, Dan Ives. Reaffirm the accounting integrity that gets you to 1,000 on Tesla and Ms. Wood to 3,000. Well, I think it continues. To, I never viewed Tesla as an automotive company. I view it as a disruptive technology player. And it comes down to can they do 1.3 to 1.4 million units next year for a company that's now starting to be profitable selling cars? You put that together, some of the parts, I think $1,000 is right. the base case. I think bull case, you get the 1300 We've got a reset on Apple. The new toys are uh, the new chip is extraordinary, up by 12 core speed. For those that don't understand that, all you need to know is they're technological marvels. Do you adjust your bull case, not your call of 185, 190, 200, but to get out to a three trillion dollar Apple at 181 dollars a share, or a four trillion dollar Apple at 241 dollars a share? State the bull case. Yeah, in bull case now, 225 was 200. And, and I think the, the part that's really the delta is the innovation from a margin expansion story that you're going to see at Apple on their new chips, as well as what I believe, forget just the chip shortage for a second, but right now demands outstripping supply by about 10 to 15,000, you know, iPhones, you know, I'd say per day, you sort of put that together. This is something that you know, I believe right now we're running into about a 5% shortages on iPhone uh, going into holiday season. Have you got an idea, Dan, of what the product mix is like around that shortage? Is it the high margin goods that can't get the chips? What is it? Is it broad based? What's your read on that, Dan? It's important for the margin story. Yeah, I mean, we could call it about 5 to 10 million shortage that, that you could see going into holiday when you put it all together. But I think the one thing, too, is ASPs continue to trend much higher. China, the star of the show for Apple, that's going to be front and center going into next week. I think you put this all together. We think this is a $3 trillion mark cap going to early next year, as well as the services you know, continues to be the accelerant in that Cupertino growth story. Now, you got two new products from a hardware perspective in terms yes. of Mac Pros, Tom talked about, and AirPods. I, I continue to think this is just a massive growth renaissance in Cupertino. Dan, hard to game this out, but just for this quarter, given the supply issues, can you envision a story where we miss on the top line, but beat on the bottom line for everything you've described? Well, I see it. It's a beat on September across the board. I think mixed guidance for December, maybe cut it by about 2 to 3% just on that unit shortage. But then ultimately, 2022 numbers come up. And right now, the street's looking through any sort of timing, transitory issues and chip shortage to the 2022 growth story. That's why haters will continue to hate on Apple. But in my opinion, this is a stock that continues to move higher. Right now, they have a supply issue, not a demand issue, a high-class problem. Dan, how would you like to see them use their money? I mean, outside of buying a country, right, <laughs> which is always an option which for one? them. Which <laughs> one? No, I, I, think they, I think they have their choice, but I think I think right now it's going to continue to be about the buyback dividend. I don't see them. The only acquisitions I see them doing is more and more. We'll call it strategic content acquisitions. You know, as it goes to uh, on Apple TV. But this is all the drum roll to what's going to be the next product innovation coming out of Apple. The AR VR Apple Glass next year. And then the Apple car in 2024. I think that's what the drum roll. And Tom talks about how you get the $4 trillion. I think $3 trillion next year. 
And in the next two years, you're looking at a $4 trillion market cap for Apple as this all plays out. You said that uh, really the accelerant here is the services component. However, Apple's still very much a consumer products company, at least in terms of the reputation of consumers. We see certain pressures with respect to the App Store. What services do you see really driving the charge as we really continue to look for the product side of Apple to innovate? Yeah, it's a great question. It's all part of the re-rating story. I mean, you go back 18 months ago, services, Street was assigning 300 billion. We think it's worth 1.4 to 1.5 trillion. It's all about monetization on cloud, on app store, you know, really across the ecosystem. Just go back to some of the, the headwinds, call it epic trial and regulatory. Street's kind of viewing that as background noise, and that's why this stock is one that continues to power through that for a mid-teen grower in what's a 70 billion annual revenue stream. Dan, you and I are close. I missed this one. Maybe I missed it a long time ago. When did you start covering GM? Yeah, so we look, we started covering GM over the last six months because my view on GM is that this is going to be an EV transformation story. Interesting. You know, as, as it gets re-rated. And, and I think what you're seeing at GM and Ford, Renaissance and Detroit, you start uh, to get more of a re-rating a year from now, GM's a double. Very quickly, Dan, are they going to make a car America wants? Not some fancy techie thing like Tesla, but something you can get the family in. I mean, look, two weeks ago I was out at, at their test driving facility and I test drove a bunch of the models. I think it's going to be a game changer what they're coming out with uh, at GM. I think Mary and the team, phenomenal job what they're doing on this green tidal wave. They're going to be a big participant Although right now it's Tesla's world, everyone else is paying rent on EVs. Well, and just quickly, though, before you run, for people who aren't familiar with the stocks you cover, Apple, Microsoft, DocuSign, are you expecting them to get a tech-like multiple over time? Well, that's my view. My view is GM and Ford, those start to get re-rated on disruptive technology as they convert that base. You start to do some math, you convert about 10% of GM's base by 2025, I think there's a three-digit stock. And I think that's the key here wow. as it starts to get more of a re-rating on this green tidal wave. It's a $5 trillion green tidal wave. Tesla's the leader, but many others are going to benefit by what you're seeing. Biggest transformation to the auto industry since 1950s. Dan, amazing. Fantastic to catch up, sir. Let's spend a bit more time on that in the future. Dan Ives there of Wedbush on GM General Motors. We are advantage with Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives. She is truly an academic of the Fed, working in market economics with the knowledge of uh, Dr. Weidman uh, as well. Did he leave, Julia, would you suspect, because of the transition from Merkel to something new for the Republic of Germany? Oh, yes. I mean, that was a very important inflection point for the Eurozone and, uh, and, and the appointment of Draghi as as Jonathan said, it changed everything. So I don't <laughs> I remember very well the existential moment uh, that we were in at that time. I was working for a European bank, BNP Paribas, and uh, we we actually had a repeated series of exist existential yeah. moments. Uh, and Draghi turned out to be the glue right. that held it all together, in addition to Merkel, Merkel's actions. Um, but I think that that was actually a very important transition away from the Bundesbank-driven ECB 
towards something more flexible that had a view and a vision to holding the Eurozone together. The hallmark of your work at BNP Paribas, you were absolutely right about tepid GDP within that era. The reality for Germany is massive trade surplus, 200x billion, only China ahead of Germany, with a huge foreign com component, and yet a domestic economy flat on its back. Does the new Bundesbank president have to say, let's get this domestic economy going, or do they not care? I mean, I think to some extent they do need to, to, to say that. I mean, we do, we do still need a, a demand driver in the Eurozone, although, you know, I, I think it's not quite as dire as where we were before. I mean, the Eurozone is, is, has weathered the crisis reasonably well, is in a pretty decent position uh, but, but yeah, I mean, Germany is in the same position that it's always been. It is a really key economy for the Eurozone, and it does need to help drive demand for the region. Julia, the idea that one of the loan hawks on the ECB is gone raises the issue that we see more broadly for central banks, which is the pressure really is to not make a move, to not make a policy error, to not raise rates too soon. And yet the market in the United States is pricing in two rate hikes by the end of next year. What do you right. think it will take for the Fed to actually get to that place, given this pressure toward easy money policies for a longer time? I think the main scenario that has to develop for the Fed to move to rate hikes that steadily would be that most of this inflation does turn out to be demand driven, that it really is reflective of a hot economy, a tight labor market generating strong wage gains, uh, that the hawks are right about the labor supply not coming back. Uh, and that you really have these demand-driven incipient inflation pressures that are building and broadening. That is the only scenario in which rate hikes make sense as the solution to the problem. If instead most of this inflation, or at least a significant portion of it, is tied to chip shortages and supply chain bottlenecks that get resolved over time, the Fed hiking rates wouldn't do anything to fix that and would actually harm the broader recovery. So it's going to be really difficult to read these tea leaves. Luckily, the Fed has some time. They've set out a tapering schedule that's probably not going to deviate. So we're tapering from here to June. And then, then we'll see where we are by then. I think uh, companies' earning reports are going to be a really important bellwether indication of how companies are navigating this because Let's not forget one of the things that's been one of the, the narratives this year is that companies have actually been navigating these challenges surprisingly well and in a profitable way. And all the incentives are aligned for them to do so. We've, so we've been in a highly profitable, highly productive economy despite all of these frictions and challenges. Does that continue to be the case? Do these problems get solved? And we hum right into 2022. That's not an unlikely scenario. All right. So in that scenario, if you see the Fed staying on hold because everything's humming along, what's sort of the tipping point in terms of 10-year yields? I mean, if we keep humming along and the Fed remains easy, the expectation is for 10-year yields to rise. At what point is it unsustainable for an economy that has more debt than ever before? 
Oh, I think we're really far from those levels. Uh, you know, we, where we are is, I mean, last recovery, we, we discovered through uh, the ebbs and flows of yields that 3% was the magic yield on the 10-year that really started to hurt the economy, that really started to hurt the interest-sensitive sectors. And obviously, that might be lower now, it might be higher now, uh, it, but it's we're certainly far from there if that is still the, the sort of magic number. Uh, so, you know, we could probably see, especially if this rosier scenario turns out to be the right one, uh, yields can rise and it's mm -hmm. just fine for the economy. It actually serves to naturally cool things off like housing, uh, which have been running super red hot. Uh, Julia, should we pay attention to Atlanta GDP now? I mean, it's a wonderful methodology. Great respect for the talent uh, here and, frankly, the other regional banks that are guessing GDP. But do you find value in the vector of Atlanta GDP lower or even the sub 1% number? Yeah, no, I, I do pay attention to Atlanta GDP. They, they're not always right, but they have a very careful methodology that I understand. And so we're actually tracking one and a half percent too. So, I mean, they're lower okay, now. Well, I don't but... mean to interrupt because the time, Julia, I've got to interrupt here. If we have a yeah. sub 2% uh, GDP, does that constrain the Fed in tapering and also in rate hikes? Well, the, the problem with this number is it's all cars. It's all autos. It is all about the semiconductor shortage. So auto sales have plunged not because of lack of demand, but because of lack of supply. Inventories are down. This is also maybe constraining the construction sector. We've so got what's the housing. The real number? What's Say the real again? number? What's the real GDP number if it's car adjusted? Well, I don't I don't do, do that myself pre GDP, but you can look at that number once the GDP uh, number comes out and it will be substantially higher. So domestic demand, we've seen retail sales be resilient. Uh, we've seen other service sectors remain resilient. Uh, the consumer is pretty resilient. The demand is pretty strong. So, uh, you know, I think X autos is going to be a pretty healthy above trend gain. And we expect some, you know, the beginnings of, you know, higher production in Q4 to produce another decent number. We're at 4%. Uh, so we'll see. Timing these uh, bottleneck resolutions, especially with the semis, has been maddeningly difficult. Uh, every time we start to get production ramping up, COVID comes back up, another factory shuts down, and the whole thing, uh, you know, hits the brakes again, no pun intended. Um, and so we're, we're, you know, we're just watching day by day how, how things evolve on that production front. Uh, now, magnesium might be another bottleneck. So yeah. we'll, we'll see how all of these things evolve. It's, it's a wild ride given, you know, remember 2020 was all about how resilient surprisingly resilient the economy was now it's all about how surprisingly unresilient global supply chains are uh but again incentives are aligned to fix these problems so uh and and covid knock on wood we're heading in the right direction uh and you know hopefully the economy can move forward and 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 those wheels can spin we're struggling to keep up still julia thank you as always julia coronado there of macro policy perspectives just wonderful this is the bloomberg surveillance podcast thanks for listening 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.